Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got an awesome Tuesday morning show for you today, and we start with the trucker protest in Ottawa, now entering day 11 downtown Ottawa, paralyzed by that trucker blockade. We've got some great guests standing by on this, but first, let's listen to part of the emergency debate in the House of Commons last night. You're going to hear from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau here. We will also hear from the new Conservative leader, Candace Bergen. First, here is Trudeau speaking last night. Individuals are trying to blockade our economy, our democracy and our fellow citizens daily lives it has to stop the people of ottawa don't deserve to be harassed in their own neighborhoods they don't deserve to be confronted with the inherent violence of a swastika flying on a street corner or a confederate flag or the insults and jeers just because they're wearing a mask. Okay, it was a passionate debate last night in the House of Commons. Let's discuss now with my guest, Peter Julian, NDP MP from New West Burnaby. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Peter, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. And I should add, it's uh, Jagmeet Singh that provoked that emergency debate last night. And uh, uh, we, we haven't seen a lot of leadership from the federal government. It was important to have members of parliament speaking on the issue last night. Yeah, no, I agree with you. What did you think about what you heard from the Prime Minister there? Well, I, I, uh, I, I think we've all been dismayed, uh, appalled by the, the presence of Nazi flags, Confederate flags. In fact, I've, I've introduced a bill uh, to finally ban uh, the, the display and sale of Nazi flags in Canada. Other countries do this, of course, and the fact that the Nazi flag was uh, just a few, was unfurled a few steps away from the Hall of Honor where we commemorate 45,000 Canadians who gave their lives fighting Nazism, including my uncle Patrick. It, it, it seemed to me disgraceful to have uh, the protesters use that type of imagery and symbolism right. that is so toxic to well, so many what, Canadians. What do you say to the argument, you know, everyone on every side of the debate is going to condemn that. You know, you get one knucklehead puts out, puts out a, 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 an offensive flag like a swastika, I mean, no one is going to support that. Like the people, like the conservatives, we're going to hear from one of your conservative colleagues in the House of Commons here in a minute. Uh, they will argue that, you know, this is, you're, you're isolating a, a couple of people who have raised an offensive flag and, and missing the bigger issue of this dispute. And when I look at all of the actions that have taken place, the, um, the disrespect shown to the National War Memorial, to the Terry Fox statue, uh, I've walked through the demonstrators and they've uh, shouted at me to remove my mask because they, they, their concept of freedom is imposing their views on others. Uh, the, the incredible high level of noise, which has led to permanent hearing loss for many people in the downtown area and, and the residents are absolutely at the edge, uh, at the end of their, uh, 
their patients with this. Uh, I, I think there are ways to express your opinion. Uh, this yeah. has not been the right way to express it, and I think it's been very counterproductive. In, in fact, I, I think there's been a real reaction what to do you think, how many of these demonstrators have acted. What do you think should be done? Well, we, we, we believe that there needs to be a plan, and, and that's certainly what Jagmeet Singh outlined yesterday in his, uh, his speech to Parliament. That he provoked the emergency debate. Uh, he was the lead-off speaker, and his speech, I, I, I think it's posted on the NDP website, it really talked about the things that we need to do to, to come back together. And yes, there needs to be a plan from the federal government, and that has not been clear as we go through this, uh, this latest wave of the pandemic. And I think it's important to to look at that. It's also uh, the re- reality is in Canada we've seen massive increases in inequality, and some a small number of people profiting from the pandemic. Many many people having to make sacrifices, and this is part of how we build back better coming through this pandemic. Well, well, place things to uh, alleviate the housing crisis and the many other crises that we're seeing in this country. Well, when you say you need to see a plan from the prime minister, a plan for what? Uh, we, we've said that we need to put in place a plan that, that shows how we are going to emerge out of, uh, out of this pandemic. And that also includes uh, responding to the various other crises that we see. Uh, the housing crisis is one that acutely impacts the lower mainland in British Columbia. We haven't seen a federal government showing leadership on that. And, and so it's, it's not just uh, going, getting through COVID and the latest wave. It's also funding our healthcare system adequately, providing supports for healthcare workers that are, uh, have, have given so much over the last couple of years and responding to these other crises that have been put aside well, do you during think, the pandemic. Do you think, Peter, we also need to see a plan to start removing or relaxing some of these restrictions and mandates? I mean, later today, we're going to hear from uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, who apparently is going to announce uh, removing some of the restrictions. The, the Premier of Saskatchewan indicated that he's doing the same thing earlier. Is that the direction we should be going in right now, removing the restrictions, relaxing them? I think the the best approach to take is to look to our our health officers who provide good direction in that. And in Canada, we have a much better record than in the United States. Uh, these uh, the part of the plan does have to be uh, getting back to a more normal society, but we can't do that at the cost of uh, of lives, and we can't do that at the cost of increasing or. Uh, provoking another wave of this pandemic let me These play are all things that we need to be that we need to be conscious of as part of the overall plan and i think canadians some canadians are frustrated they don't see a plan from the federal government we need to see that speaking to peter julie an ndp mp from new west burnaby let me play a clip here for you from the conservative leader last night in the uh, yesterday in the house of commons here is candace bergen then i'll get your thoughts Minister, they want to get back to work. They want to get back to normal life. That's why we're seeing demonstrations not only in Ottawa but right across the country. The Prime Minister has caused division by overtly politicizing vaccines and the pandemic and calling these Canadians names. And now he's saying these protests really aren't his problem. They're the provinces or maybe even the cities. When will the Prime Minister stop hiding, show up for Canadians, show some leadership, and fix the mess that he's created? Peter Julian, do you agree or with her, or what do you think of her comments that Trudeau is politicizing vaccines, calling the people in the in these protests names, and that that's not helpful? Your analysis? 
well, sadly, the Conservatives have uh, have deeply politicized this issue, and and this is unfortunate. I. Uh, the, the NDP, of course, has, has been pushing and is critical of the Liberal government, but the Conservatives, uh, I, I just don't understand their approach at all. When residents were clearly being impacted by this, you had Conservative MPs, some of them, saying that they uh, support the, uh, the the rights of the protesters. Other Conservative MPs saying, no, the, the protesters should, should go home. So there's been complete incomprehension from the Conservatives, and this, of course, contributed to the deposing of Aaron O'Toole as Conservative leader. The, the, the Conservatives seem to have four different positions on any issue right now. Okay, they seem to be calling for some sort of dialogue or negotiation to, to resolve this, what's going on in Ottawa right now. They've called for all parties sit down to discuss it. Other people are advocating for talks, dialogues, negotiation with the truckers to end this. What do you think is the way forward? Like, what is Jagmeet Singh saying about how do you how do you stop this? How do you how do you solve it? Well, for, first off, uh, the, the the spokesperson for the protesters has said that they uh, want to uh, go to the governor general and depose the federal government, and uh, they they have this coalition government that they want to put together. It's absurd, uh, unbelievable that you would have. Somebody with such a, a small understanding of the Canadian democratic system. We've just come through an election. I don't like the results, but you don't overturn the results because you don't like them. Secondly, uh, the, the law already exists in, in, in Canada for, and in, in the city of Ottawa to make sure that when, when people block traffic, that they're ticketed and towed. And in other cities like Toronto and, and Vancouver, uh, those municipal bylaws have been enforced. It, it, I don't understand why in Ottawa that hasn't happened. Uh, these are laws that already exist and should be enforced. Okay. But all right. uh, above all, it's a plan to get out of this and a plan to start to address the chronic inequalities that are, are profoundly hurting our country and that need to be need to be dealt with seriously. And that's what Jagmeet Singh said in his speech to the country last night. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the trucker protests in downtown Ottawa now going into day 11. What is the path forward here? How will this be resolved? Let's discuss with my guest, Tracy Gray, conservative MP. She represents Kelowna Lake Country in the House of Commons. I'm pleased to welcome her to the show. Tracy, thank you for coming on today. Great. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. What do you think should be done here? What is the path forward to resolving this? Well, you know, we we are in a time where Canada is is more divided than ever, and it certainly has not been helped with uh, divisive comments by the Prime Minister, name-calling, saying that he will only meet with people who he agrees with. The leadership is about listening, and I, I think what's really important to note is that our leader of the official opposition, the Honourable Candace Bergen, wrote to the Prime Minister yesterday, and she requested a meeting, between the Prime Minister and all of the party leaders to come together and discuss how they can de-escalate the protests and to take the temperature down and help find solutions that will allow, you know, the good people of Ottawa to get their, their lives and businesses back, but also to have a peaceful resolution. And, you know, during the entire pandemic, we have been calling on the government to release their plans. What's the plan? And, you know, people need a message of hope. We, we, I remember early on, this was, this was last year, it was almost a year ago, 
in March uh, of, of last year, where we had a conservative opposition day motion asking for calling on the government to disclose a clear data-driven plan to support, you know, safely, gradually and permanently lifting COVID-19 restrictions. And, and I think people's frustrations build up when, when they don't know what data is being used, what metrics is. If, if I can, I'll just give you an example. Well, uh, before, 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 you do, mm-hmm. before you do that, let, let me ask you about something you said a little earlier about uh, Trudeau and what you think he should do. So do you believe that Justin Trudeau should meet with these truckers? Well, the comments that he's making right now are, are certainly not helpful. And so this is why the party leaders need to, need to come together and to come up with a plan on how we can have a path forward. I, I will say so you're not, so you're not, so you're not, so you're not advocating for anyone from the government to actually meet with these protesters. You're saying the politicians should get together for a meeting, but no one should talk to these truckers. Is that? Correct. Well, well, that's part of it. And, and actually, I've been out boots on the ground. Uh, I, I as, as a member of parliament, don't attend protests, but I've been walking the streets and, and talking to people. And, you know, I've talked to people from, with all walks of life there. I've talked to teachers and truck drivers and landscapers and construction workers and retirees. And, and many are families that have come down here and they, they felt that it was time for Canada to have a path out of the pandemic. Many of them I talked to said they were double vaccinated. And they, they were just really frustrated right. with, with how they've seen things affect their livelihoods, their mental health. And, and I'm hearing very similar things from constituents in, in, in my office when I meet them back in Kelowna as well. The, the, leaders of, the leaders of the trucker convoy, though, held a news conference yesterday where they talked again about some sort of process to replace the government with some sort of interim committee. They talked about meeting with the governor general. They want to have a committee to replace the government and drop all these mandates. I mean, surely the conservatives don't support that. Or do they? Yeah. Well, they, I mean, there, there are government processes to follow. And, and certainly within parliamentary process, one of the tools is to have emergency debates, like what was held last night. And, yeah. you know, when, when we look at comments from what was heard last night, that's the forum to really represent constituents and represent, uh, represent our communities. I know that our uh, shadow minister for uh, public safety, uh, Raquel Dranko, spoke, spoke really well uh, yeah. about, you know, just listening to people. She had referenced how other advanced nations, you know, had plans together in, in order to reopen their economy, to have compassionate leadership. And so that's the right. format to, to have the, the, the voice of, of, of the members of parliament come let me play, through parliament. Let me play a clip here for you from one of your conservative colleagues speaking in the House of Commons yesterday, conservative MP Michael Chong, uh, who says that it's time for these protesters to go home. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. Michael Chong. It is time for the protesters to end the blockade in Ottawa and the blockade at the border crossing in Western Canada. It is time for the protesters to go home to their families and their communities. We have heard their concerns. We have met with some of them, and it is now time for them to go home. Their concerns have been heard loud and clear, and no doubt in the coming weeks, their concerns will be debated here on the floor of this democratically elected legislature. Okay, Tracy Gray, we just have one minute left here. What do you think about his comments? Do you agree with him the truckers should go home now? Well, I think the truckers want to get back to work and they want to get back to their communities. And so, you know, whether, whether some of them feel that they've been heard or not, 
you know, they whether or not they've met with elected officials and, and been able to, to, you know, meet with a lot of the representatives here. They're, they're here because they, they want to be heard and they want to get back home. We, we need them to get back home and to work in their communities. And we need to make sure that our supply chains aren't, aren't crippled as they have been by, uh, by a lot of these mandates. We, we have been firm from the very beginning that we have not been in favour of um, these mandates for federal no. regulated industries. We've been consistent okay. with that. And okay. so people need to have hope and they need to have a plan forward. Thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right, it's a busy day in uh, B.C. politics, a throne speech day at the B.C. legislature that's coming up this afternoon. On yesterday's show, the new leader of the B.C. Liberal Party was my guest, Kevin Falcon. And we covered a lot of ground in our interview, including his plan to overhaul the Liberal Party, including a possible name change for the Liberals. Here's what he had to say to me subject to two things one that we can come up with a name that that you know most of the members can agree with makes sense and the second thing that we can you know make sure that nobody can mischievously try and use the old bc liberal name to run candidates against us and confuse the public so subject to me getting clarification over those two issues that's something we need to consider okay new leader of the liberal party kevin falcon he says it's going to be a new new party under his watch as well it sounds like let's get the other side of it now with my guest nikki sharma ndp mla for vancouver hastings and i'm very pleased to welcome her back hi nikki Hi, Mike. How you doing? Thanks for being here. I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on once again. What do you think about when you hear Kevin Falcon, he's the new leader of the party, he's uh, been around BC politics for a long time, although he's been out of the game for the last decade or so in the private sector, but he's back now. And he says this is a new party. He's going to do a complete makeover of the Liberals, including a possible name change. What do you think of that? Yeah, so, you know, I've been kind of a spectator for the leadership race, and I just want to start by congratulating Kevin Falcon on his leadership victory. I think it's, you know, it's a hard-fought battle. I'd just like to say that watching from the sidelines, it really looked like a struggle between whether or not the party was going to choose renewal and change or they were going to stick with old ways. And I think by going with Kevin Falcon, they really made their choice clear. Here's somebody who's been a senior cabinet minister in both the Campbell and Christie Clark government for 12 years, um, you know, I think that he doesn't just carry the baggage of the Liberal Party. He helped to pack the bags of the Liberal Party. And it's <laughs> interesting that they want to change the name, but I'm not sure that that changes um, what the record is for him in government. Okay, well, he says he's this is going to be a complete do-over. He's going to change the direction of the party, not only change the name, he's going to bring in lots of diverse new candidates and party members. You're not buying that? Well, I think it's important to remind voters what he stood for when he was in senior levels of government um, for 12 years, and that was putting tolls on the Portman um, Bridge and, and others and, you know, selling off public lands and not investing in hospitals, schools, and all those services that people rely on, um, ignoring the child care crisis for years. So this record just can't be erased by um, a name change. And I think we have to remember that um, here's somebody with, who's experienced in government and has a record yeah. to be looked at. Okay, let me play a couple of other clips here for you, Nikki, from our interview yesterday and get your thoughts. Now, we talked about the NDP government under John Horgan on the show yesterday. And I, I put to him that the NDP are going to be on the attack against him as a an old-school liberal right-hand man to Gordon Campbell from the bad old days of the liberal government. 
And he, he pushed back on that. He's pushed back against the NDP and some of the people on the front benches on your side of the House. Have a listen to what he said about that, then I'll get your thoughts. Uh, that entire front bench of the NDP have been doing nothing but being in politics their entire lives. They, they you know, I mean, Horgan, Farnworth, Fleming, all those guys, none of them have any private sector experience, or at least uh, not enough you can fit on a single sheet of paper. Nikki, so you heard him ripping your colleagues there on the NDP, including the the, the premier there saying just a bunch of old school politicians with no no experience in the private sector. What do you say to that? Yeah, you know, I, I find those comments really troubling. I have colleagues that are firefighters, that are nurses, that have been successful in the tech sector, that are lawyers like myself, that really represent the diversity of the jobs and the experiences of British Columbians. And when I hear him say these comments about the private sector experience being so important, it seems to me that he's looking down at other people. And that to me doesn't really represent somebody who's looking to renew the party and attract more diverse candidates. And so to me, it's more of the same. And it's a bit elitist, actually. What do you think of his private sector experience? He's been in the private sector for about 10 years doing a lot of uh, real estate development work. Um, well, you know, it'd be interesting to learn more about his private sector experience during the um, and what he what he did during that time. But, you know, I think it's important to remember that we we have been focused on housing and making yeah. sure that um, housing affordability is front and center to the work that we're doing. And Kevin Falcon has opposed some of our taxes that we've put in place that really are about curbing speculation, including the foreign buyers tax and the vacancy tax and speculation tax. It was really just about making sure that if you have that second home, you're putting it up on the market for a rental or you're paying a tax. And that meant 18,000 more rental properties on the market in Metro Vancouver because well, of our efforts. And well, he seems to be opposed to them. So, you know, um, I think that that's trouble. It should be troubling for a lot of people listening. Well, I know one of the things that he did in the private sector was it sounds like he made a lot of money because one of the things he told me was that to go back into politics now, he'd be taking a pay cut. And the leader of the official opposition in, in our system, I think, makes around 160 k a year or so, something like that, 160 So he yeah, sounds like... It's a- it's, yeah. it's a real comment that shows how out of touch that, that he is with the reality of a lot of British Columbians that show up to work every day, have been struggling through this pandemic, and we've been on their side every step of the way. And I, I just don't know, when I hear comments like that, I wonder what really is he's thinking. And it, it well, reminds me of the 12 years when he was in in cabinet and, and the decisions that were being made that really hurt a lot of people by cutting services giving tax yeah. breaks to the riches but not the riches but not helping people in their daily lives. Well, I, I know that his critics are going to be pointing at that record in real estate development for 10 years and, and other businesses too, uh, and making a lot of money, it appears. But I asked him about that yesterday, Nikki, and his background in real estate. And he actually said that he thinks this is a, a good thing for a leader of the opposition to have, a potential premier to have experience in in the housing market here's what he said about that and then i'll get your thoughts so kevin falcon on yesterday's show just they don't know how to get big things done housing affordability is a classic uh when i left in 2012 you know housing prices were starting to rise but they have exploded under the ndp in spite of the fact that in 2018 they introduced a whole blizzard of new taxes on housing and here we are almost four years later and we've seen the highest run-up in housing prices we've ever seen. 
They do not know what they're doing. Okay, Kevin Falcon on yesterday's show. So there he is talking uh, precisely about those tax measures that your government brought in, Nikki, and saying that it hasn't solved the problem. And In fact, housing prices are getting worse. But your thoughts? Yeah, housing is a big challenge, but the work that we are doing is making a real difference for British Columbians. And I, you know, I think it's interesting that he's interested in affordable housing now. I wonder where he was over the last two decades, especially as a real estate developer. He's also interested in childcare now, apparently. But, you know, these are things that we've been rolling up our sleeves and tackling for British Columbians over the, our time in government and making real differences. 18,000 new rental markets on to over 22,000 families having 10-a-day childcare at this point. These are real impacts on people. I'm so proud of our record. Now, one thing that you have to remember is that when he was making decisions as finance minister, that included increasing car insurance rates and taking wow. money from ICBC. So this is somebody wow. that's saying that he's a good manager, but I wonder about that. And, and during the campaign, he said that he would be against our changes to ICBC. And that, that's something that's saving people an average about 500 a year in car insurance payments from our work. So we are making real impacts on people's lives, and I'm proud of that record. Okay, let me ask. Let me uh, play another interesting exchange. Yesterday, we talked about the Massey Tunnel, the chronically congested Massey Tunnel. The previous Liberal government had started work to build a 10-lane bridge, massive bridge. It would have been the biggest bridge in British Columbia over the Fraser River to replace the Massey Tunnel. Your government canceled that plan and has announced a $4 billion tunnel, a new tunnel to replace the existing tunnel. And I asked him about that yesterday. And if he ends up as, as premier in the next election, the Liberals are back in power, he says he might he just might do another cancellation, cancel your new tunnel and go back to plan A and build the bridge. Now here's what he had to say and then I'll get your thoughts. They want to do this crazy idea with the tunnel. They're going to be stuck in the environmental assessment process for the next five years. Nothing will have gotten done. That's why I'm going to go back to the bridge idea. We can dust off the old plans, update them and get that thing built. Okay. He says he wants to build the bridge, go back to plan A for the bridge. Nikki Sharma, your thoughts. Yeah, I've heard him say a lot of things about this project and the replacement of the Massey Tunnel, including that, you know, it would it would last for another 50 years. So, you know, we are not only investing billions in, in upgrading and improving the bottleneck there, but we're also not going to put in tolls. And that's another thing that yeah. I think that um, he said pretty openly is that he thinks removing tolls that we, like we did in Portman, for example, was bad public policy. It sounds like not only would, if he was premier, he would go backwards, so delay a project that's already, you know, we're hard at work at by canceling yeah. it, but also... Well, that's, what you guys, that's what you guys did. That's what you guys did. They were, you, they were already building the bridge, and you guys canceled it. But we have a good plan when it comes to the Massey Tunnel replacement, and I would invite, you know, sometime you should have Minister Fleming on to talk about how great it is and how much <laughs> it's going to improve the situation there. And, you know, going back now, if he's saying, I would be concerned that he would want to go back to a toll bridge, and I don't think that oh. works for anybody, including people that have to drive on it every day that would have to right. pay that. Nikki, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD.
That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the trucker protest in Ottawa. Now, protesters opposed to vaccine mandates continue to occupy the streets of the capital. We are in day 11 of the trucker protests and the blockade in Ottawa. It was at least a somewhat quieter night for the residents in Ottawa last night after a judge ordered the truckers to stop blaring their horns. And it looks like that piece appears to be holding or certainly was a lot better last night. The plaintiff in that court action, Zexi Lee, here she is speaking to CTV. My message to the protesters really is to recognize that you are hurting people every single day by being here. You are hurting businesses, you are hurting residents, you are hurting animals, children, and just regular people. There is a way to do a protest, and this, quite frankly, is not it. Okay, let's talk to one of the lead lawyers on that case, Emily Tamman. She is a human rights and employment lawyer in Ottawa with champlaw.ca. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Emily, thank you for coming on today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Okay, you must be very pleased with the way it worked out in court. Can you tell me about the uh, the court application that you made seeking the injunction to get the truckers to stop stop blowing their horns? Absolutely. So we um, brought an application for an emergency injunction. Uh, we presented the court with evidence in the form of affidavits from our clients, um, speaking to her personal experience um, living at the epicenter of this um, occupation in Ottawa. Uh, we also had evidence from an individual who had uh, gone around downtown and taken decibel readings. Uh, so we were able to present the court with evidence of the actual levels um, of, uh, of sound downtown. And then we also had a physician, an ENT specialist, who was able to provide the court with some information regarding uh, the potential for long-term hearing damage and other um, implications for hearing uh, for residents who are being exposed to such high levels of noise. And the court accepted our position that um, there could be irreparable harm if the injunction was not granted. Um, and so he did, in fact, um, issue the injunction, which um, prohibits the honking of any air horns or train horns, which have been um, the devices of choice for some of these um, protesters uh, for the next 10 days. Right. OK. Yeah, it was a big win for you and your client there. And it sounds like it's been working. Was it a more peaceful night last night in Ottawa? We're advised by our client that it was by far the quietest night and the best night sleep she's had. And as you said, in, in 10 days um, and, you know, it remains to be seen whether and to what extent there are efforts to get around the injunction somehow by, you know, changing the noise devices or something like that. Uh, but we will be back in front of the judge 10 days from now. So uh, we'll have an opportunity to make the case if necessary that the injunction should be um, extended and or expanded if necessary. Right. I know the truckers had their own lawyer in court there and they argued, I think they made a freedom of speech argument, correct? Uh, that was part of their argument. Yeah. I mean, right. they, they tried to take the position that 
Um, if you live downtown, you should expect to be exposed to some noise. Um, yeah. I don't know how I can adequately convey to your listeners how loud these sounds have been and how sustained and for how long. This is nothing like, you know, the usual din of living in an urban city. <laughs> um, so they argued that. Um, and then, yeah, they took the position that on balance, the right to freedom of expression should be trumped. But of course, you know, all we were asking for is that the horns be stopped. We actually explicitly requested that the judge include a term in the injunction that specifies that nothing in the order um, should be construed as interfering with the right to peaceful protest. And so yeah, right, you know, we were right. very thoughtful ourselves, given our own um, commitment to human rights, to ensure that it was as limited as possible to achieve really important ends. Yeah, right. I mean, those are some of the fundamental freedoms in our country that are enshrined in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We, people have the right to free speech. They have the right to peaceful assembly. And uh, I guess no one obviously is, is arguing against that. But, you know, I thought it was interesting that the judge, you correct me if I'm wrong, Emily, but I believe the judge at one point said that sounding a horn is not the same as that's a noise. That's not that's not free speech or free expression. That's just making a noise. I think he said something. Did he say something like that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly, you know, there are contexts in which, you know, there could be some kind of protection afforded. But you know, when 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 considering freedom of speech, it, the content of the speech is important as far as the nature of the speech. So, you know, the more political, the greater protection. But here, you know, there's not a lot um, conveyed through a horn. And so, you know, and on balance, the judge, I think, basically found that, you know, they're they're, they're they can still express themselves in other ways. Yeah. Speaking to Ottawa lawyer Emily Tamman, she was one of the lead lawyers here on the case seeking to get the truckers to stop blowing their horns. And appears to have been successful. Does does it surprise you in any way that it, it was a quiet night last night? That it, it does would indicate that you know once a judge puts his foot down here, like we've seen here, that there's enough command and control structure among these protesters that the word got out and they said, okay, we're going to we're going to do what the judge told us to do, and we'll stop we'll stop leaning on our horns. Does, yeah, I mean, I mean that, we were certainly. Yeah. Pleased to see that. And um, actually, it was a term of the order that uh, the named defendants who were represented in court uh, are required to post a copy of the injunction to their own social media uh, channels. Um, We're also uh, required to disseminate it in the media. But um, I I suspect that there's no better way to get this information to the truckers themselves than via the social media um, of the convoy organizers. I I don't know whether that's happened yet, but I do know that uh, one of the named defendants put out a video um, and so, you know, we're hopeful that that has some influence uh, with the truckers. Right. Okay. So I'm sure that's a, a relief for the people living in around the area, the red zone, as it's known there in Ottawa, where the trucks are parked, that the noise, it, it sounds like, is going to be a, a lot less. Let me ask you about the, the other legal action that's potentially underway, and that's a class action lawsuit by Ottawa residents against the truck occupiers there. Can you tell me the status of that class action? So we just filed it on Friday. <laughs> so it's in its infancy. Um, and in fact, the, the motion for the injunction is related to the class action. It's an interim order related to the proceeding. Uh, but essentially, we're seeking damages on behalf of residents uh, residing within a six-block radius of Parliament Hill 
those being the residents that have been the most significantly um, impacted by the noise. And we're seeking damages under two different heads. The first is damages for uh, mental distress, pain and suffering, the lack of sleep, lack of concentration. Um, in some cases, people have incurred expenses because they've had to temporarily vacate their residences because it became intolerable. Um, those damages, you know, based on uh, previous precedents that we were able to, to find, um, we estimate that a court would award damages in the range of one to $200 per day per person. Um, and so based on where we were at the time that we filed the lawsuit, we estimated the damages at approximately $4.8 million for all the members of the class. And then wow. we're additionally seeking five, a further $5 million in punitive damages um, through which the court can send a message that this kind of, you know, behavior that is very organized and coordinated and has as its purpose uh, causing harm and disrupting life for citizens. So, so you're um, looking- that, that should be... So you look. So you're looking for what? It's like close to ten million dollars. Then That's correct, because right, it's a class action. So there's a lot of members in the class. Like if the class, if a court accepts that, that it is a class action, and that's a step that still has to take place, then we're looking at several thousand people. Wow. And so okay. So when you're looking at ten million dollars here in a class action. The money, there's been a lot of reporting on the money that's been raised by the truck protesters. We had that GoFundMe campaign that I think, I think was around 10 million bucks <laughs> before they shut it down. I mean, is that, is that the, you're, you're, you're laughing there a little bit. I mean, is, did you get, <laughs> is that how you settled on the 10 million? Cause that's how much they raised in GoFundMe? Well, I mean, you know, we certainly were aware that that was, you know, an amount that, that they appeared to have uh, available to them. I mean, ultimately <laughs> the, the particularized damages are based on 100 to 200 dollars per day. That's you know more than half of the damages that we're seeking, and that that number will would continue to grow for every day that the, the honking continues. Um, and then you know punitive damages, selecting a number is not exactly a science, but um, you know we felt that in the circumstances with that many people affected, that that would be an appropriate number. Right, and now uh, GoFundMe, of course has shut that fundraising effort down and announced they will refund that money. So I guess that's not available to you anymore. But I know the truckers have been raising money on other fundraising platforms, correct? Uh, as far as we know, yes. So we're certainly yeah. keeping our eye on that. And, you know, ultimately, we're not going to get ahead of ourselves um, too, too much. But uh, there are all kinds of uh, legal mechanisms that we can explore and pursue to um, you know, seize potential funds that could be recovered as damages at some point in the future, um, or at least freeze them. Um, yeah. And yeah. or, you know, if we're successful in the lawsuit, then after the fact, it's how we take steps to enforce the judgment. And uh, that's a very complicated process, it, but um, we'd certainly be exploring all avenues. Is it difficult to do a class action like this? Like it, the class action has to be approved or certified by the courts first before it goes forward, right? That's right. So that'll be the the next first step, <laughs> the injunction having been a sort of preliminary step. But yeah, that's right. So we'd have to go back before the court to persuade the court that um, the experience of our of our representative plaintiff, Sexy Lee, um, is shared by others in the community. And so, um, you know, we don't expect that to be an unduly difficult uh, hurdle, but it's certainly uh, an important part of the proceeding. And, and when do you expect that could happen? Uh, to be honest, I don't know exactly. We, we've been pretty just overwhelmed by um, the effort that went into pursuing this injunction. So as soon as we have a chance to breathe a little bit, we'll start to, you know, figuring out the timing of our next steps. Okay, well, I'm watching it and following it with great interest, um, as our listeners are as well, I'm sure. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate it. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me.
All right, welcome back to the show. And here we go now with the great Bitcoin debate. Is Bitcoin a smart investment? I guess a lot of people have made a lot of money on it. It's gone down recently, I understand. Is Bitcoin a genuine currency? Or is it a scam? Is it a con? Is it a house of cards? This is a great debate we've got going on Bitcoin. We've got two great guests standing by on this for you, both sides of it for you. But first, have a listen to this now. This is Bill Gates talking about Bitcoin. He's not exactly a fan. Have a listen to this. There's some really good technology in terms of sharing databases and verifying transactions uh, that is talked about as blockchain. That is a good thing. Bitcoin and ICOs, I agree completely. Uh, it's one of the crazier speculative things where it's not, as, a, as a, an asset class, you're not producing anything. Uh, and so you shouldn't expect it to go up. It's, it's kind of a pure greater fool theory type uh, investment. Okay. All right. Bill Gates there calling Bitcoin a fool theory type of investment. Okay. Well, let's discuss here. We got both sides of it for you. Andy Barriar on the line, technology and digital lifestyle expert. HandyAndyMedia.com. Hey, Andy. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Also on the line is Adam O'Brien. Adam is the founder and CEO of the Bitcoin Well, and I'm pleased to welcome him too. Hi, Adam. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Okay, guys, thanks to both of you for being here. Adam, when you hear that from Bill Gates being criticizing Bitcoin, what goes through your mind? Lots of things. I think that uh, I don't love that he, well, he called them ICOs. Uh, they're actually called ICOs, but he lumped Bitcoin and ICOs in the same category, and they're just inherently different. Um, everything he said is super true of ICOs, uh, but not of Bitcoin, because what we're talking about with Bitcoin is that it is actually the base money that our, that our um, communities or, or that our population needs compared to, uh, he actually did a very good job of, of, of describing fiat there, where like the money we use is currently baseless and not uh, backed by, by anything other than a government's promise, uh, which is like way, way different than what, what Bitcoin is, of course. Um, I'd also like to remind everyone that at one point in time when he was actively, in, actively involved in Microsoft, that Bill Gates thought there might be uh, a, a retail side of computers um, for like 9% of USA. Um, so I think that he's like, he's obviously a brilliant man, but I don't know that his long-term vision is, uh, is, is maybe as sound as we'd like to uh, put okay. on that pedestal. All right. Let me get Andy's thoughts on it. Andy, your thoughts on Bitcoin. Well, so the thing about Bitcoin, Mike, is when you look at it, the way that Bitcoin is marketed, of course, it's marketed as a coin. It also has the color gold. So I always try to consider Bitcoin, is this gold 2.0? Is it digital gold? And the thing is, that when you compare it to gold, you know, gold has intrinsic value. It, it's something that it, it, as a metal, it is the most valuable metal. You can wear it. Uh, you could use it in industry. So you understand the value in gold. But when you look at Bitcoin, where's the value? The value is whatever we assume it to be because it doesn't have that intrinsic value. And that's why I have been very skeptical of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as a whole. Adam, what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, Bitcoin isn't marketed. There's no central authority behind Bitcoin. So um, it's just not marketed. And it's not actually gold. It's, it's orange. Uh, people like, of course, the, um, some, some manufacturers did tokenize a physical... Bitcoin that you can buy for like 30 or 40 cents. It's no more than just a copper coin. 
um, that is like, you know, colored or painted gold, but it has no actual reflection of what Bitcoin is. So I, I don't think that's super accurate. And second of that, I would disagree with your Bitcoin or with your gold having quote unquote intrinsic value. Like, frankly, I think silver looks better. More people wear white gold, which is <laughs> has to be manipulated to look more like silver. Uh, gold doesn't have an actual tangible value of $2,200 an ounce. Um, that's just what the market value is. So I think that if you're yeah. going to use the intrinsic value argument for gold, you have to use it for Bitcoin. Okay, Adam, let me ask you this. Like, Do you think Bitcoin is a wise investment at this point? Like, wh like, what do you do over there at Bitcoin? Well, you, you, do you sell Bitcoin or what do you do there? Yeah, so we make it easy to buy, sell, and use Bitcoin. So think yeah. of us like a Bitcoin retailer. How much is um, it? How much has it gone down? It's gone down recently, has it not? Well, what do you mean by recently? Um, oh, last few months. Uh, last few months, I believe it has dropped. It kind of got hit in the same uh, um, clump as like growth market stocks. If you look over the last year, I think it's 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 appreciated by about twenty percent um, compared to like fiat, which you know in Canada they're stating is seven percent in decline. So it's certainly outperforming the dollar. Uh, which is a nice thing to see. I think if you look over five years, um, it's been the best performing asset on earth. I don't know that anything in the last decade has outperformed Bitcoin. Um, Andy. But I would be challenged on that. Andy, what do you say to that? Well, here's the thing. I, I always tell my people, I go, um, you know, Bitcoin kind of reminds me of vaping because we have yet to see what it, what it's like long term. We just don't know. And so the question is, is Bitcoin going to be, or cryptocurrency as a whole, going to be a long, good long-term investment. And the fact that it doesn't have any actual value, Mike, and that's what I, I still can't grasp. It's only what yeah. we perceive it. And we see the fluctuation in the prices because of that. And, you know, we moved away from the gold standard because it was so volatile. But we can't go to Bitcoin. I can't be buying my coffee with Bitcoin if the price is just flying all over the place. Okay, Adam, what do you say to that? Yeah. I would definitely disagree with that. I think that um, our Canadian dollar or the U.S. dollar is volatile. And if you can't see that, I mean, go try and buy a house right now. Go try and buy a car right now. If you look at, if you want to talk about volatility in the market, you cannot exclude the entire world from that volatility when we've seen, especially in the last year and a half, um, incredible and unprecedented amounts of volatility in what we, quote, what we call quote-unquote stable markets. So I don't know that like Bitcoin is the only thing that's volatile. I think we live in a volatile world and uh, Bitcoin is a fix to that because at the end of the well, day, I, I don't quite understand why we, you know, agree that Bitcoin has no value, but not, you know, everything else has this value. You know, what is the actual value of a house? If it's just the wood and the plastic siding on it, houses are not worth what they're selling for. But we agree that I the guess, market dictates prices of assets. I guess, Adam, like the, the most common criticism of Bitcoin when it say it's not really producing anything or it's not like a hard value of, of something you can hold in your hand. It's just basically kind of, you know, you're buying something based on the, the psychological pers you know, or perspective that people have and what it, what it actually is. And, and as far as it being a currency, like you can't really buy anything with Bitcoin, can you? Like you can convert it into dollars and buy stuff with the dollars, but you can't really buy anything with Bitcoin. Is that right? Well, I would disagree with that. I think there's a like you can pay, uh, you, you can buy trips, you can buy things on like Overstock.com with with actual like Bitcoin. But at the end of the day, you could also just use your Visa card, which isn't really Canadian dollars, it's just a Visa token, um, and then pay them, pay that off with Bitcoin. So like really, 
Like you could live 100. I actually know people and I have lived 100% on Bitcoin uh, with services like, like ours, like, like, like Bitcoin Well that exists today. So I think Bitcoin certainly is usable and there's a retail market that's making it more and more usable okay. every single day. Andy, your thoughts on that? Well, the big question is, I want to know if I can go to my local barber and pay in Bitcoins to get a haircut. And there, it lie in the, the challenge is trying to convince small businesses to well, accept can you pay Bitcoin. Gold? Well, well, no, but it's, I, I guarantee you, if I go with a gold coin and say, cut my hair, that, that my barber will take that You don't think coin. if he went with because one Bitcoin the value, that he'd take the Bitcoin? I don't know. I don't think he even understands don't what Bitcoin it. is. And this is the challenge. <laughs> the challenge is so, you have to educate people. And when it comes to money, 100%. I, I am very, very hesitant on people to bet the farm on a cryptocurrency when you can't really understand what the value is. Okay. Other than the people who yeah. got in early are telling you to get in with the fear of missing out. That's the value is the people that got in early. Right. Adam. I definitely agree with the education piece. We actually spent a ton of money building what we call the Bitcoin Academy in partnership with a local university here in Alberta. Uh, and, and, it, and it's free to take. It, it, it's a full deep dive into Bitcoin, the technology, how it works, why it works, a kind of economics, the history of money behind it. So education, 1,000% agree with that. And that's part of our job. You know, you think about when credit cards first came out, how long did it take them to actually get um, useful? And what it needed was it needed a network of people, a network of retailers, educating the public on why that is a good system or why, how it okay. can make their lives easier and better. All right. Welcome back. As we continue to debate Bitcoin, Andy Barrier, Adam O'Brien, your calls. And we got lots of calls here. Steve in White Rock. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hi. Bitcoin uh, has value because um, people... Uh, buy and sell it at a profit, um, and it does go up and down. Um, gold is way overpriced, but I make sure I have some because most people don't think it is. Um, it, you know, gold is good for your for dental work and for jewelry, but really, it doesn't really have any good use. You can't move your car, you know, if you put gold in your tank. So the the point is is that how we transfer energy. So it, what it's really good to do is know people need somewhere to live, so own land. Uh, people want to move around, so own energy, um, and and the way okay. um, these these currencies um, uh, buy for the way they uh, transfer those uh, values. Who knows? Okay, okay. Thank you for the call, Andy. What do you think of his comments? His thoughts on it? Well, I, I, again, the thing about gold is that you can still people will accept gold if if you know society is going you know. Uh, completely unstable, the value that gold has is why people will accept it. You know, if you go with gold bars and try to get gas, if somebody has an independent gas station, they understand that gold has value. I can sell it to someone else. And that's why it, it, it has that value. Bitcoin How is, doesn't have that intro so ev value. That everything you've said there is true of Bitcoin, but the exception is Bitcoin is much, much easier to move than gold. If you have a lot of gold, it's very, very difficult to move. Which, which is because gold is missing half the equation. The point of money is to move the value we create with our time over time, so over a period of years, which gold does very well and historically hasn't very well, but also over space, over geography. If I have to send money from here to my cousin in Australia, I can't do that with gold. I can't do that with legacy banking, and I can do it with Bitcoin in a matter of seconds for almost no okay. cost. Let's squeeze in another. Bitcoin solves the last half. Squeeze in another call here. Paul and Burnaby. Hi, Paul. Go ahead. Hey, Paul. Paul, I'll give you one more chance. Paul. 
Okay, snooze you lose. Scott in Maple Ridge. Hi, Scott. Go ahead. Yeah, of course it's a real currency. You can pay your taxes in El Salvador. You can buy drugs on the dark web, hire a hitman. Um, you you know, if Elon Musk dumps his holdings, it'll crash. But, you know, that that's okay. And, of course, we all hope that the shady creator of it doesn't own a trillion dollars worth of it that he's going to dump at any moment. And, you know, and the final icing on the cake is it's inability to uh, to process transactions. Bitcoin isn't even the best one. I mean, if you're going to pick a crypto, why pick Bitcoin? It's already lagging, and it's not even that popular yet. Adam. Apparently. Adam. Yeah, so, I mean, everything that he said there is true of the U.S. dollar as well. So if we're going to compare the Bitcoin to the U.S. dollar, I think we're in pretty good shape as far as its viability. But I think that like the point of this quote-unquote shady uh, founder is like all that stuff is verifiable. We can go and audit the blockchain at any time and see where coins are going and what's happening. Um, so I like like all those risks are true. They're true of every single asset class in the world. Uh, but with Bitcoin, you can you can publicly and audit uh, those those uh, those risks, which I think is like the best thing. Uh, Andy, your thoughts. Well, there's always that speculation, you know, about Bitcoin, because we know that there's only 21 million Bitcoins that are going to be circulating. And the question is, the people that got in early, they're always going to tell you that Bitcoin's a great thing because they have an incentive to do with it, because there's no other value and other than creating that value. So that's why you see the FOMOs. And I, I worry that the mom and pop investors are going to hear about this and suddenly try to move all of their assets into, into cryptocurrencies and lose a lot of money because that is what ultimately worried you about. And so I think debates yeah. like this are good. I think education is good before people, you know, decide what their level of risk is. Because when you invest in totally crypto, agree. you have to have a high level of risk because it is volatile. and We don't know if it stores value over the long term. Adam. Totally agree. I think that uh, like never once has, have, have, has, any, has me or really any like legacy long-term Bitcoin um, OG suggesting you should put your entire life savings in the Bitcoin. My recommendation is 2.1% of your net worth should be in Bitcoin, 2.1%. An amount insignificant, less than the average uh, financial advisor's fee should be going into Bitcoin. And it is my assumption that over the next decade, and especially over the next three, four, or five decades, you will see that 2.1% grow and outpacing the entire rest of your portfolio oh really oh man i don't know about that andy your thought we just got a minute left here andy go ahead wrap it up here well so and we have to understand when we talk about bitcoin we're talking about cryptocurrencies and that's no no no, no 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 i'm talking about There's, bitcoin not crypto very very important. i understand i'm talking I understand, about bitcoin there are uh, there are six thousand maybe up to eleven thousand cryptocurrencies that's the so casino there are very, that's garbage look, just by having first mover advantage doesn't necessarily that they're going to be the last mover. And I think of MySpace and I think of social media. So you have to remember that. Will Bitcoin hold its value? Nobody really knows, but they were the first movers. But that doesn't always necessarily mean they're going to be the okay. last. Adam, you have 20 seconds here to final comment. The technology is the most important piece there. Cryptocurrency as a whole is centralized and it okay. doesn't have much revolutionary tech. Bitcoin has revolutionary tech. It's decentralized and is the okay. purest form of money.